Friday nights at 9 p.m. It's time to sit back, relax, and play conspiracy bingo with Echoplex Media. We've curated the best conspiracy theorists the internet has to offer and turned it into a live bingo game you can play for free with absolutely no prizes but bragging rights. You won't find a live stream like this anywhere else, and that's probably better for everyone else's mental health. Tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia and find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. I'll get on Twitter. I'll see something outrageous. I'll get triggered by it. But, I mean, I'll get off 30 seconds later and it's over. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. Welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live on Twitch every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific. That's twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia for those of you listening to the released podcast. If this is the first time you are listening to this podcast, make sure you follow it on your podcatcher of choice or don't follow it on your podcatcher of choice. That's up to you, I guess. Maybe maybe the content will uh, let you know <clears throat> let you know what you should do. Um, you can support this project at patreon.com slash echoplex or just go to echoplexmedia.com. Click the support tab and you can find out other ways to support us. The swag shop is probably the best way. We have a bunch of good stuff and we have a couple new shirt designs in the works. Before we get going, I have a big announcement. Brett Weinstein finally blocked me on Twitter. Finally blocked me on Twitter. I don't remember what it was I said. I was talking shit to him yesterday and he blocked me on Twitter. So that's good. I think the entire intellectual dark web has now blocked me on Twitter. So that's fantastic. And I wouldn't have it any other way. So uh, welcome, everybody. And with the good news of that, we are going to go on to the bad news of our content. This guy, Richard Reeves, has been kind of making the rounds in like sort of heterodox and men's rights activist adjacent spaces. Um, 
good friends with Andrew Yang from the Forward Party. More, we'll probably do a thing on the Forward Party in a couple weeks here um, on this show. I'm not sure what we're going to do for it, but the Forward Party is kind of a big grift and it sort of fits into the, uh, the thing we're doing here. So here's Richard Reeves going to talk about um, why the modern male, male is struggling. He's supposed to be one of these positive masculinity gurus. The problem is he's on Michael Shermer's show. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Michael Shermer is not an example of positive masculinity. Ma- Michael Shermer has been accused of sexual assault, I believe, uh, credibly by more than one uh, woman. And these, this happened at atheist conferences where women oftentimes did not feel so comfortable in the first place. Wasn't great. Uh, and the, I believe that the, uh, organizers of the conferences short sort of took Shermer's side, which was even worse. And uh, just a bad look all around for Shermer. This is in the past. You can look it up. It's You could find information about it. It's everywhere. But this is also a bad look for this Richard Reeves guy who is supposed to be talking about positive masculinity and uh, just all bad. This is going to be a fucking train wreck. So, uh, I don't know, strap in and welcome. Welcome any newbies. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Shermer, and it's time for another episode of The Michael Shermer Show, brought to you by Wondrium. One Dream is a series of college-level... Oh, no. No, 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 no. Ask the same kind of questions we ask. Invention of purgatory, right? This place between... Well, maybe purgatory. Well, that's not in the Bible exactly, so how did that get invented? Right there in the Middle Ages. So check it out. If you go to wondrium.com, the annual subscription limit, and uh, while you're multitasking doing things, you can educate yourself through this great... Uh, resource. Uh, as you can tell, I don't. Ne- I never watch a minute of this content before we run it. I had no idea there was a fucking ad at the beginning of this. The entire episode. Also, don't shop with any of these companies that these uh, monsters are advertising. To this podcast would be to go to wondrium.com slash Shermer and sign up. That's why they support the podcast because people do that. W. Does, does he have a skeptic? He has a skeptic pin on upside down. Look, his pin's upside down dot com slash Shermer. Check it out. I wanted to invite you to participate on a journey of a lifetime. This is a 20-day expedition to Antarctica aboard Swan Hellenic's new Nerf. Nope, 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 nope. Don't want to get assaulted by Shermer not going. They'll reach with its glacier-clad mountains, craggy peaks, and vast number of albatross. Two days, two decades life that beautifully have awesome. I hope you so since we're in to you again soon. My guest today is Richard Reeves. He is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Oh, yikes. The Boys and Men Project and holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead chair. He is the author of Dream Hoarders, How the American Upper Middle Class is Leaving Everyone Else in the Dust, Why That is a Problem, and What to Do About It. That was published in 2017, and he's a regular contributor, as I'm sure you've read many times, in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and The Atlantic. His new book is Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. So that's, by the way, Richard, that's a perfect title and subtitle. I always contend that either the title or the subtitle should tell the reader what the book is about. A lot of authors try to have some clever (laughs) title or subtitle, and you can't figure out what it means. Here, it's right there on the front of Boys and Men. So let me just start right there. I think um, 
Now I'm just going to make up this uh, response to your book. I don't know if any if you've heard ever heard this or if anyone would actually say this, but you know what comes to mind is something along the lines of, "Oh, boo hoo, boys! Now you know what it's like for girls and women for the past oh I don't know ten thousand years." That's not really the response. That's a shitty response. The, the proper response to this is let's take a look at who who runs governments and who runs corporations, who holds the seats of power in our society. That's the right response. It's not boo-hoo boys. Bottom rung on top now, fellas. Buck up and take it for a while. It's our turn now. The future is female. <laughs> okay. I don't know if anybody would actually say that, but yes. I can imagine. You know, it's like you guys. Why? Why? Well, the obvious criticism is the one that I gave because I'm not some kind of super genius. Fall behind and now you're a bunch of whiners. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, uh, even if people don't say it, they may well be thinking it. And so there is this, the time. Oh, well, even if they don't say the criticism that people aren't really leveling about what I'm saying, they're probably thinking it. They're probably thinking, oh, boo hoo boys. Now it's your turn to get, get left behind. But then they come up with some weird thing about who has the power to like mask their true feelings. Ellen's problem. Right. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it, look, I think it's perfectly understandable reaction. And I think, uh, especially given how quickly the women's movement has succeeded on so many fronts. I mean, this is, this is just unbelievably quick in terms of social change. And so I think updating our priors to say, oh, actually, enough progress has been made now for girls and women that it's, that it's not crazy to look at the ways in which boys and men might be behind. I mean, that's happened in like a lifetime, which is nothing in cultural years. And as you say, it's been millennia that it's been the other way around. But I, I do think that most people deep down don't think that two wrongs make a right. And I don't think that many feminists really see the, the goal is to have 10,000 years where boys and men are doing badly. Then we call it evens. And then maybe we move to this. Well, we're not going to be around for 10,000 years. Yeah, we can't call it evens, even if that's what we want. want. I don't think many really think you get like that. 100 here if you're lucky. Um, but I, I do understand the instinct, though. I mean, and I, and I do think there is a lot more to do for women and girls, and you've discussed it quite a bit on, on, on this podcast, that there are remaining challenges. But, but that's, that's my reaction to that reaction. Right. So um, the women's uh, movement has gone through, I guess, three stages, right? There was kind of the right to vote, and then the 1970s, the right to property and equal pay and have mortgages and banking uh, independence and so forth and then what i guess we're in the third wave now or the, you know the latest wave of feminism um which uh, you know i probably kind of aged out of following it carefully in the moral arc oh no i track really probably that second wave first and second waves the most so this one um it seems like it's pushing ever forward uh, so you get these, you know, more and more opportunities and women taking those opportunities. So what, uh, let's just, pre what's the problem to be solved in the book here? What, wh uh, how are boys and men falling behind and, and you know, and, and why does it matter? Sure. So the, the evidence that I marshal in the book, and I have to say it's been quite a long time in the coming is mm -hmm. focused around three different axes. One is education, the second is employment, and the third is the family. And I think they probably get increasingly controversial 
as we go through them. So when he says the family, he means that chart. He probably means that dating chart that they all that they all refer to. You know the one I'm talking about. Start with the evidence just on education gaps. There's no real debate about the fact that there are now large gender gaps in almost every advanced economy in terms of education and that they've reversed in recent decades. So you know, one fact that illustrates it is that in 1972, which is an important year in the US because that's when Title IX was passed to promote gender equality in higher education, there was a 13 percentage point gap in the percentage of men getting college degrees over women. Now there's a 15 percentage point gap, but the other way around. But it's been, it's, there hasn't been that, even if you just say between now and not, if all of a sudden in 1972, that 15% gap existed, that's still a blip in the radar and the long, like the course of history. I mean, it's longer than I've been alive, right? But it's about 50 years and that's nothing, but that's not the case. It's just in the last decade or decade and a half that this has been, this has been the case. So this is like a very small time frame, and we don't know if it's just like a like an anomalous thing that is going to like sw swing back or just kind of if it regresses to the regresses back to 50 percent 50 50 or whatever we don't know because it's been such a short time that it's been the case that this gap has existed so girls overtook men and then kept going and so there's a bigger gender gap in higher education today than there was when title nine was passed just the other way around and there are many other examples in high school and elsewhere but and it's interesting and it, and it is everyone goes to high school dude pattern. this is not a peculiarly US phenomenon. And so large and in some cases growing gaps in education. And everything I'm going to say is especially true for working class boys and men and black boys and men. Secondly, in the labor market, what we've seen is this really impressive economic advance by women, not evenly for sure. College educated women, women at the top have done particularly well, much slower rates of progress for, again, for less educated women, but still across the board increased economic progress, whereas most men today in the US earn less than most men did in 1979. So if, if American men were a country and we just- But in 1979, there were still places where a woman couldn't get a credit card or nobody would hire a woman because she was a woman. What this is that the, 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 the comparisons he's making are to a time when just because Title IX got passed in 1972, it isn't just like a blammo, now all the sexism in the workforce is gone and all the sexism in the uh, higher education is gone. That's not how this works. Like, it takes a while for policy to actually have any impact on society. So, like, this is dumb. Can, you, can we compare it to, like, 1999 or something? In terms of individual earnings, it's poorer today than 40 years ago. And that's a remarkable economic fact. And I think one that really does have to be taken into account. And what that means is that the traditional economic relationship between men and women has, has really been fundamentally altered. So when the traditional economic relationship between men and women, I'm going to stop this a lot. We're not going to get through very much of this at all in an hour and a half. The traditional economic relationship between a man and a woman was woman can't leave man because man make money woman no have money if woman leave man that's the traditional economic relationship between men and women world where i can say this on this show and people will understand what i'm saying i think 40 percent of women now earn more than the median man now when i say that to people sometimes they're like well and, and it was 13 percent in 1979 but, but why are you choosing 19 is it just that this is the last time the data was collected or is 1979 is there is this like cherry picking like particular years to make it to make things look a certain way? 
Okay, it's not 50%, right? That would be, that would be full equality, but 40% of women earning more than the average typical man, that's a transformation in, in the scale. In, in a but that, that, wait, what? No, 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 you're, you're, that, but that argues against whatever point you're trying to make. A very short order of time. What that means is that 40% of breadwinners are now women and rising. Okay. Which brings you to the third, which is the role of men in the family and fathers. What does it mean to be a father? And I think in an incredibly short period of time, in a generation between my, you know, my dad was lots of things, but he was also the breadwinner. And that was just accepted in his generation. That was his core responsibility. That's changed. Well, you're, I mean, you're, he, what, this guy's like, what, 10 years older than me, right? He's like 55. I guess I just had like pro very progressive, like modern parents. Like my dad, like my mom was like not working. And I remember one night at dinner and my dad was like, you're miserable. He's like, you need to go back to work. She's like, oh, you know, the kids. And he's like, the kids, Dave is 14. Amy's nine. They can do a couple hours at home after school by themselves. You're miserable. Go back to work. And it, it wasn't that they needed the money. My dad was very successful, but it was just that he just was like, it was like, you're miserable. Like I forget, I think she just got mad about something at dinner or whatever. And because my dad wasn't about to start a fight with her, he was like, Hey, I know what's going, you're just bored. You're just bored and frustrated. Then three weeks later, she, she was back working and she was happier. These, I don't know what kind, I mean, I guess 10 years is a big difference. Cause I was, this was like the, with the late eighties. And for him, I guess he'd have been that same age as me in the late seventies. Maybe 1979 is like when he was coming of age. Maybe that's why he chose that time frame. In a, in a generation. And so the question of what does it mean to be a father? Husband and father used to be a package deal. Now, being a, what does it mean to be a father in a world where the women's movement has successfully and wonderfully, in my view, broken the economic dependency of women on men to an incredible degree? It means being there for your kids. It means if you're still married, being there for your wife, being a father also means being a good neighbor, being maybe good to your kids' friends, treating your kids' friends well, being somebody your kids' friends' parents can trust if they need help. Like this is, this is what being a good father is. And I, it's never going to change. Those, th those parts of being a good father, they better never change. Women don't need men economically which was the basis for their oppression for the 10,000 years you mentioned. What, what are men for? Uh, and I think that question- Well, they're just people, dude. Wait a minute. What do you mean, what are men for? We're just people. What are men for? Get the fuck out of here. Dude, we're just people. We're here to do what we do. We're here to hopefully treat other people well and have some great life experiences. And we want to raise kids. We can raise kids and we should do that as well as we can. What do you mean, what are men for? Real urgency. And that's the one I try to address in the book. Right. So let's unpack some of those numbers. So on income, um, yeah, 40% of women earn more than the medium income of men. Okay. So that still means inequality. Kind of a statistical technicality, but doesn't it depend on the kinds of jobs or professions or careers? And we still hear this, you know, women only earn 79 cents on the dollar, or 89 cents or whatever it is now. It's always still, I guess, below a dollar. But that's just on average taken across the board. So you're talking about specific kinds of jobs and careers where these differences have shifted? So the, the numbers that I just cited are for all workers working full-time between the ages of 25 and 64. So that's prime age workers. That's the group that economists- that's, that's, 
the workforce. Yeah, that's that's actually the the best statistic on that. It's just everybody who works. Very often look at because until then, as education, and particularly with the gender gaps in education, that's important. And then after that, it becomes you know some people are early retiring. So prime age employment and full time is used partly to deal with the fact that part time workers in many ways do get a raw deal in the labor market. But that's the same basis on which we do calculate that gender pay gap that you've just referred to. So whether, how, depending on how you calculate it, 82 cents on the dollar is my preferred metric for the gender pay gap. But the numbers I just cited are just for all workers. And so what that means is what you, you, if you think about <laughs> distributions almost always overlap. I think, I think I've heard you on a show, Michael, saying, maybe you're quoting Steven Pinker or something like, the main problem is people can't think on continuous variables or something mm-hmm. like that. Am I, mm-hmm. am I butchering that? Yeah, that's um, right. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and that's true. That's true in almost everything we're going to talk about in this, in this conversation. So perhaps we could just, if I could just say now on average and with overlapping distributions, and maybe you could edit that in after everything I say, it'd be <laughs> painful to you, but it would right. save me a lot. Right. <laughs> save me a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, was what the, the male and female wage distribution used to look quite different, but they now look quite similar. There's still a difference, but they look quite similar. And so you've seen this extraordinary catching up uh, by women uh, of men, in part because a lot of men have gone backwards a little bit, right? which is not maybe the ideal way to get to equality. But this transformation in the but there are some there are some uh, there are some games that are zero sum. Not everything is zero sum, but there's some shit that's zero sum, and there may be some industries in which, for women to make advances as a as a class, men are going to have to slide back as a class. There may just be situations where that's the case. Women, it's just incredibly important to get our head around in order to understand everything I think that flows from that. Not least this really fundamental challenge to what does it mean to be a mature male in modern society? So just to be clear, so is it possible that lower working classes, working classes and lower middle class average salaries are tugging down that medium such that the upper middle class and middle class guys are they're doing fine? Yeah, so that's the other- well, the upper middle class and the middle class are just doing fine. That's what those terms generally mean when we talk about like econo- socioeconomic status. Happened in the distribution. So male male median earnings have dropped a little bit as we discussed a moment ago, which is one one reason why the gender gap has narrowed. Uh, you know, if we can make men poor enough, then we'll all be equal. Um, but you're right that simultaneously the distributions look more similar. To each other, but they don't look at they don't look the same shape as they did in '79. They're stretched way to the right. In other words, we've seen a big rise in economic inequality, and especially at the top, that was the focus of my previous book. Especially this top 20 percent have really just pulled away, and so men at men at the top are better off than men at the top were 40 years ago. It's just every, all the other men aren't, and women at the top are much better off than women at the top uh, used to be. And so y- this cross cutting of class and of course of race which I hope we'll get into, really is terribly important right now. And so- Oh, this guy's probably got some problematic ideas about race. Understanding how even as the gender pay gap has narrowed, the class pay gap has significantly widened. And then of course, if you add on to that differences in family formation, what's happening is upper middle class women are forming households as upper middle class men, which means household inequality is really being turbocharged by two things. One, they're earning more. And two, they're sharing their earnings with each other. 
And that's just much, much less true at the lower and lower you get down the distribution. And so the real challenge here is in the middle and towards the bottom of the economic distribution where men are really not doing very well at all. Right. So this income differences between men and women on average. I remember reading back in the, I think it was the 80s, Milton Friedman made the point that if if a company could get away paying, you know, 80% of the, on the do, 80 cents on the dollar, uh, it, wouldn't they hire more women? <laughs> no, no, that's because Milton Friedman's an idiot and it subscribes to an old idea of economics where like economists, most economists no longer think this uh, to the credit of the uh, field of economics. They think that everybody's just a rational actor, right? It's an old, old idea of economics. The new idea of economics is like behavioral economics, where we understand that everybody is not a rational actor. And that explains like a lot of the things going on in the economy. So if you have to go all the way back to like 1980s, Milton Friedman, like this is a, this, this is the, this guy's a relic. He probably hasn't looked at any of the like, like more modern economic literature. And there's problems with that stuff too. Like, and I'm not really super, I'm not an economist, right? But I, I know that the, the, the paradigm in economics changed to just sort of just like get rid of the notion that everybody are just these rational actors going and doing whatever is going to make them the most money, because that's not what people do, not as individuals and not as groups. Rather than hire more men because they could save, you know, make 20% more of the profit. So how is it possible that there could be any difference unless the difference is explained by women working fewer hours back then because they had more childcare duties or. Well, but why did the women, why, if you were married, do you, did, did the woman have more childcare duties, Shermer? Come on. Like, why wouldn't you just share the childcare duties, Shermer? Different kinds of professions. I remember the example I think he might've used was like, uh, on average, if a woman, uh, women doctors go into pediatrics, whereas a few more men go into plastic surgery, plastic surgery pays more money than pediatrics. So on average, you're going to get a little bit of a difference, even though no hospital is saying, well, you're doing the exact same job as this guy, but we're going to pay you 80% less, something like that. But I, I haven't followed that too, too closely there in, in a while. Well, isn't that a problem then that maybe the plastic surgeon is making more than the pediatric doctor? I'm not an expert on plastic surgery or pediatrics, but I know which one I think is more valuable and should be compensated for their fucking time better. Shit, man. Yeah, I mean, the work here, I think, to, to point to is Claudia Golden's work. Uh, she's the Harvard economist who I think has done the best work on what's driving the pay gap now uh, and, and how that's changed over time. And so a diminishing proportion of the pay gap can plausibly be attributed to the kind of direct discrimination you're talking about. There's really... There's really very little evidence now that there's very much direct discrimination going on. In other words, paying a woman less for doing Except that in a lot of the higher paying fields, like, like right now, like if you're not going to be like in the C-suite or if you're not like old money or whatever, and you want to make a ton of cash, you got to go be a software engineer. There's a male dominated field. That's, it is just a male dominated field. Um, we have HK on. It would have been nice to have him on a little bit to talk about this because he said he he has said, and it's just his experience, but I believe him. He said that he saw sexism and racism in tech. He said that some companies were better than others, and he said that the company that was the best that he worked in was LinkedIn. And 
maybe Meta when he worked there or Facebook was the worst. But just like small little little tropes about how women aren't as good at math as at math or that women in you know uh, like uh, uh, software engineering or engineering or like diversity hires or that black people are diversity hires that fucking tilts the scale it 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 can't not tilt the scale same job as a guy the the bottom line here is that the pay gap is a parenting gap uh and that's most of the story now is the differences in the trajectories of men and women post children and so if you look at the earnings of young men and women holding everything else constant which is you know that's that's something to discuss maybe, but holding occupation, working hours, education, and so on, constant, they look very similar. There's not much difference now between men and women as they track through their 20s. And then around the early 30s, the women's line just plummets and the men's line keeps going up. And so- That's because they're not getting promoted, you dumb fuck. It doesn't take much investigation to figure out what's going on there. And good studies have investigated that. And what you see is just that Becoming a father has very little effect on men's earnings. In fact, if anything, might bump it a little bit um, because men who are fathers take on more overtime, for example. But it has this dramatic downward effect on on women, and so. But that's well, then why is that? Because like to actually have the baby and like have some time off to recover physically is a year max, and in your in the grand scheme of things in your career, that that ain't much. And now we're offering men. Uh, a paternity leave. So that doesn't make sense either, except for the fact that we still live in a sexist society where all things being equal, women are expected to be the primary caregiver of, of a, of a child when there are two parents. Single biggest reason now for the gender pay gap is these differences in the division of labor in terms of raising children. Uh, that's the that's the big story. There are other factors like occupational segregation, which you've already alluded to, which is that women tend to be in lower paying professions. That's another. But factor. are those why are those professions lower paying? But the big one is is parenting. That's really that's where that's where yeah. things kind yeah. of are landed in terms of the literature now. Because once we start talking about professions, these are the word profession means something different than job. And I should say, like, actually, that, um, I think I, I have this. I have this great st uh, a study in the book which looks at drivers in Massachusetts, uh, train and bus mm. drivers uh, doing exactly the same job, highly unionized, and it's a great study because it's able to control for for pretty much every factor in the same employer, and you do see the pattern I've just shown, which is it's parenting that does it, and, and that's what explains the pay gap. And so, well, then why? But then we still have work to do. Drivers who are men choose less social hours, work longer hours, do more overtime. I'm not sure like doing the laundry and, and like taking care of the kids and taking the kids to soccer practice. Okay. At soccer practice, you might get some time to socialize with other adults, which by the way, is probably a deliverance for mom, right? If all she does is works and then takes care of the kids soccer practice where she gets to talk to other parents, probably a bit of a deliverance for her, but still like, why can't dad do that shit? less than the women and that difference is really about the parents once the drivers become mums they do less overtime they choose less antisocial hours and under the union contract that means they earn less and so they can explain all of the gender pay gap in that very tightly controlled experiment through these differences in uh, the choices that mothers and fathers are making yeah 
And I mean, these aren't necessarily the choices that mothers and fathers are making. These are societal expectations. Those are, those are, those are at play here too. And those are stupid societal expectations. Yeah. So here it seems like, um, I don't know if you'd say it's the feminists that, uh, kind of push this narrative that the, the, the power, the action where the, the goal is, is to get into the corporate world, get into business, make lots of money. And, you know, parenting is somehow less than that. But I always found that peculiar because, um, I mean, work is work. I, I like my work. I'm lucky. But, you know, I mean, I can only work so many hours. I never wanted to be a CEO or even a college president. I remember when I was, a, uh, I'm still a college professor, but I see, you know, the, the people that want to be. Where is he a professor? And presidents is like, why would you want that job? That's like a real job. These guys wear suit and ties. They work like I don't know, seven in the morning till eight at night. They have to fundraise. I mean, that's why they. Who wants that's that? That's why they have to give them such a great. <laughs> that's why they have to give them such a great name. By the way, I have this theory that the more fancy <laughs> right. sounding the name, the worse the job. That's why they have to make you dean or president because it sounds great. Right. And that's chancellor. an attempt to camouflage for the fact that the job itself actually. Oh, sucks. let's talk about deans and chancellors actually at uh, universities, since you were saying that the. The scales have tilted in academia towards women. Well, let's talk about the deans and chancellors of um, maybe the Ivy League. But yes, yeah, and I I know what these some of these these presidents and chancellors make. It's you know way more than me. But I, who cares? I, I'd rather have the time to ride my bike, play with my kid, write my books, whatever. I don't know. It's like uh, you know, let's not just say well. You know, the average income, that's the most important thing, or the top incomes. It's not the most important. But nobody's saying it's the most important. <sighs> we'll get to that when we talk about uh, parenting. But that's in a capitalist like society, it does matter. So the goal here should be, I guess, in terms of justice and fairness, is that women just have the option. You can be a parent, you can be a careerist, you can be a half careerist, half parent, you can just do whatever you want. Wait, what? Yes, I think that's right. I think it's interesting that the, I mean, as you know, there's been a, always been a divide in the women's movement between the, let's call it the lean-in uh, corporate uh, economic power side, which is that we need to get into the male labor market and, and compete on effectively on male terms. And those that have said, no, that's basically you know, selling ourselves off, you know, cutting ourselves off at the past. We should be instead getting things like wages for housework, which was a, a big movement. And, and it's interesting now that I think you are seeing some feminist writers starting to question some of those kind of economically driven motivations of the, pre the previous wave of feminism and starting to talk about care, starting to talk about family and so on again, in a way that I think was really an active part of the debate in the 1970s. But I think you're essentially right, justice and fairness would suggest substantively equal opportunity. So that doesn't, that doesn't just mean formally. I think obviously that means having access to the education, having cultural access to institutions. It's very easy to say, well, there's nothing stopping a woman from being a lawyer when she would be the only lawyer in the US, for example. Uh, and so I think those need to be substantive equal opportunities. But then, yes, you get to a point where we have to treat people's choices with a degree of respect if we are reasonably convinced that they're being made from a position of power. And well, that's, well, that's the problem, is that I'm just telling you, societal expectations that women take on most of the responsibilities of raising the kids i don't think the, i don't think most i don't know if women would choose that but the societal expectation is there so it's hard to hard to like do any kind of controlled experiment with that because of a lack of power uh, or because of socialization now the first of those is easier to prove i think when you can see 
I, I love Claudia Golden's work on Harvard MBAs, for example, where she shows just how many women who've got a Harvard MBA are working part-time when they have children. And it's really hard to imagine a more but, economically powerful but, group. But, oh no. Like, they're, if they're married to a man, couldn't their husband be the one working part-time? Oh, oh no. Group of people in the history of the world than people with a Harvard MBA. And so I think that's a good illustrative example where you can feel reasonably confident that those women are making that choice autonomously rather than because they've been forced into it or brainwashed into it. Uh, but the, so the, it's not like the choices aren't complete autonomy or force and brainwashing. Like that's not how this works. Influence, especially on a societal level on these things is more subtle. It's just more subtle than that. So as we get closer and closer to substantive gender equality, then I think we have to start taking some of these differences in choices a bit more seriously, potentially as real choices as opposed to something that you've been brainwashed into. But that's almost impo that's impossible to prove empirically. And so I think that's where the argument is now. And so no one disagrees, for example, that women do more childcare, especially when the kids are very young. Parenthesis, that doesn't mean they have to do it when the kids are older, and that's a big part of my argument. But no one really argues about that. What a, a feminist, I think, would argue is, yes, that's because women are told that they have to do that. They're socialized into believing that they should. You're a little closer here when you're like, they're socialized into believing this. Yeah, the societal expectations are there. It's more of a nudge than a shove, you know? Very young children. And I think that's the real question. It's like, is that still true? And at what point would you start to be more confident that it was less true than it was? Well, when the numbers started to bear out something different. When the numbers were like, well, actually now almost an even number of men are working part-time when their kids are young. And this leaves out, you know, same-sex relationships, you know, we can, this, but that's not what they're talking about anyway. I don't think that they're, I don't think they're denying those exist or whatever. And I would argue that we are getting much closer to that point now, especially when you see these very economically powerful women making those choices. I'm not ready to just say they don't really want to do that. Well, no, but. If you're economically powerful, that means you have money. Like when you get to the point where someone would call you economically powerful, I'm going to say that that probably means that you have so much goddamn money and that money is making money for itself in such a way that you never really have to work ever again. So that's like a, that's like the, like at the very top of the layer cake. <laughs> you know, I, I can't assume for the sake of argument, they don't want to do that. Or indeed, if a man chooses to do it. Mm. Yeah, there must be class differences in those kinds of options and choices as well, per your previous book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich just died. You know, she wrote that famous book, Nickel and Dimed. Yeah. I, I knew her. She was fabulous. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing for a Harvard MBA uh, woman to, to, you know, to work through her 20s and into her early 30s and then have children and then hire a couple of nannies while she goes back to her career and she has help and somebody to clean the house and so on. You know, the, the nickel and dimed lower class and working class people, they, women, they're not doing that. They can't do that. Right. They're more likely actually to go back to work more quickly than the women with more economic power, which, is, which actually goes against economic theory. Economic theory is that the, the highly educated women, the opportunity cost of being out of the labor market is incredibly high for them. <laughs> Every what? hour no. they're, they're at home rather than the labor market is very, very high. But actually, they're the ones who stay at home most. Because they can afford it. 
And at the very top of the distribution, I bet both parents are like kind of likely to quit for six months or whatever, or a year. Like at the very top? When they have the option to do so. Um, and it's, this is where race becomes interesting too, because it's especially true of black women. The speed with which black women return to, into the labor market after, after having children is astonishing by comparison, especially to white women. And so again, you see these huge racial gaps. And, it's, and uh, how do you interpret that? And it's interesting because you know, from one feminist perspective, you might say, well, that's great. You know, they're not allowing having a kid to stop them being active in the labor market. But I have to tell you, I talked to a, a colleague of mine, a black woman, and she's like, they are not choosing to do that. They have no choice, but you know, that's, that's not a choice. That's a, they're forced on them because either they don't have another breadwinner in the family or he's not doing very well. And so she actually, you know, this is a very, very left-wing black woman looked the white women in the room in the eye and said, I'd love to be able to stay home for a bit. <laughs> and you can see that that's, yeah. that's sort of everyone's category is getting scrambled at that point um, because she was saying, actually, that's a privilege to be able to take that time off work and be with your kids. How gendered it is becomes the real question. Yeah, that's the, that is the question: is that it's gendered? It's that that oh, I just feel like I'm repeating myself. Is that the, the societal expectation is that the the, the woman is going to be the one doing that? And I don't see why why a man can't do it. A man can't carry the baby. Obviously, well, uh, a person with a without ovaries can't carry the baby, right? Um, but after the baby's born and the person who gave birth is physically recovered what's what's the difference if mom or dad is the one staying home like really what's the difference and so you you it's there are a lot of people who are like oh it's hardwired it's hardwired it's biological and i you know i just i don't find those arguments compelling um because they just say it's the way it's always been it's like an argument from uh like um tradition or an argument you know yeah an argument from tradition and it's like well that doesn't mean it's biological just because we've always done something doesn't mean it's in our biology. Like <clears throat> societal expectations are actually fairly powerful. Mm, right. Okay. Let's go through your categories. Oh, no, I was going to mention uh, that study on, in Sweden where uh, women, I think it was the country with, in which women had the most opportunity and least obstacles to go into STEM fields. And, and they still have a fairly wide gap between um, STEM fields and, and the heel fields, as you call them, health, education, and, and so forth, uh, more people-oriented rather than things-oriented. So, no, this shit again. That, you know, it, this shit is like a, it's like a dog whistle for women like to gossip. Boys from a young age migrate toward things, and women, uh, girls, migrate toward more people-oriented things. Anyway. But, like, uh, even if we, let's say that, if we, like, just look at toys... Toys are all things, right? So little girls want to play with different toys, but are they, are maybe they're, do maybe mom and dad going and buying the doll for the, the girl and the truck for the boy doesn't mean the girl is more interested in people. That doll's not a person. <laughs> it's a fucking thing. The truck is a thing too, but like, oh, this is what Shermer, the stuff Shermer's bringing up are like really, really like kind of, kind of older. I guess they would be like moderate, like moderate positions, but they're moderate positions from like 20 years ago. Uh, to whatever extent that's true or false, we can just set that aside for a moment. It appears that when given the options, you know, more women are, are still choosing not to go into STEM, even though they could. This is in Sweden where the obstacles are low. So that's often touted as an example of 
well, there might just be inherent differences in what people are interested in doing. We don't want to force women to go into becoming computer programmers at Google. If they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. Who would, who wants to be a programmer at Google? I don't. <laughs> right? I'm not good at yeah. that stuff. But you know. The problem that he does, too, is the obstacles he is... The, the obstacles he's talking about are like basically institutional obstacles, obstacles in education, obstacles in employment. But the other, the other, it just leaves out again, like it's the nudges of societal expectation is the societal expectation that women will go into healthcare and, but not like surgery, but rather pediatrics and nursing. Is that the expectation in Sweden? I don't know. Are they, even if their government is, you know, even if their laws are very, very egalitarian, is it, maybe it's still a very patriarchal society in a lot of ways. I don't know enough about Sweden. And I don't think he, you know, I don't think Michael Shermer took any, like, took any time to look up anything about, like, cultural attitudes in Sweden about what, what men and women should be doing. So, same. I'm not sure. But I do think, I'm not sure what. I do think it's. I, I just I do think it's worth saying on that though, Michael. It's a great example of an overlapping distribution, mm. right? So on average, the people things distinction between males and females holds, but the distributions really overlap. The question is, how right. much do they overlap? And what that mm. means is that under conditions of substantive perfect equality, you shouldn't expect to get fifty fifty percent in say a STEM field. Okay, but also if the distribution overlaps at all, it shouldn't be one percent. Or five percent. So, what is the number? Becomes the question. And uh, and actually, I, I, well, I it's going to be like it's going to it's going to vary field by field and, and specialty by specialty. Sure, but those variances at at, at some point, if 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 we could get rid of what I'm going to call like the nudging of societal pressure, those variances would seem almost arbitrary, right? They would seem like almost like they there's there's really no reason for them that you. That there's no pattern to the to the to the variances, but there's a pattern to the variances. So we, it's the goal is it can't be fifty fifty. That's stupid because then you're like, then you're at like the extreme margins trying to so solve for a problem that probably isn't there. But if the variance, if the pattern of the variances always cuts a certain way, then maybe there maybe there's a problem. Maybe we have more work to do. In fact, not maybe we definitely have more work to do. Rue Song, a psychologist, has some interesting work with James Rounds, where they actually look at the percentage of women and men in various fields, and then what you predict based on their psychological differences. And what they find is a good match in lots of places. But for example, they suggest that under conditions in which preferences were being expressed freely, about 30% of engineers would be women. Okay. That sounds about right to me. Like, I, I, yeah. maybe it's 25%. Yeah. Maybe Why does it sound right to you? Not 50%. But also not 15%, which we currently have, or 5%, which we had until recently. And so the danger is you get some folks. This is so we're starting to, it seems like, it seems like we're starting to head in the right way. We're starting to head in the right direction or whatever on, um, you know, I don't think, I don't know, 30% seems a little, a little skewed, but like, whatever. If it would, it, maybe it would be offset in somewhere else, like in, in that industry, right? Maybe the engineers would be offset by the, uh, the analysts. And it would be 65, 35 the other way. And we'd be like, well, okay, it's sort of offset over here in this other part of this field. And maybe, maybe it would be in flux and it would be kind of going back and forth a little bit over the decades and whatever. And we'd be like, this is fine. But as soon as it starts going towards where he thinks the ideal is, this guy writes a, a book about the crisis of boys and men. Like, does anybody else like see 
like why I don't like this. I think um, why I think there's like some underlying problems here. I'd like to read this book. Actually, I don't want to pay for this guy's book, but I'd like to read it. Maybe, maybe I can get it at like a used bookstore or something, support my local businesses and whatnot. Conservatives who will argue that whatever the current gender inequality, it's explained by these differences. Well, is it? Um, and then, of course, on your left, you get anything short of 50-50 is a sign that we're- No, nobody on, no, nobody's saying it's, it's going to be 50-50. I think what I said a minute ago is like, a, like what a reasonable person, even a very far left reasonable person would say. If one is 70-30 in like, in like the software field in like engineering or whatever it's going to be, if it's 70-30 in engineering, you would have another offset the other direction for network security analysts or- um, uh, fr front end UI design, or um, I don't know, but server maintenance, uh, systems administration. Like you know what I'm saying? It would be offset somewhere else in the industry. Okay, and the truth, of course, lies somewhere in between, and it's just a very difficult thing to get at and say. How do we know when we've reached a point where we can be pretty confident? I'm sure that one percent. <laughs> of women politicians, for example, does not reflect real differences between men and women or engineers or fighter pilots. Um, right. But I right. don't think we should or necessarily lo lobster expect to be fishermen or those guys that, uh, that right. work on those ships yeah. up in Alaska where, you know, some 20% of them die. <laughs> yeah. So that might be, that might be men because men are like, <laughs> men, are, men are stupid. <laughs> we do things like try to, Try to try to rope two ladders together to get up higher and stuff. <laughs> um, but also, we should do things to make those jobs more safe. Actually, the the solution is to find out a way to uh, go lobster fishing without losing twenty percent of the people that do that job. Or maybe I don't know. Just maybe if the lobsters are making it that hard to catch them, we go. All right, lobsters, you win. <laughs> yeah, there's fewer women doing that. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much none. Yeah, that distribution. <laughs> right. That distribution. <laughs> that distribution is probably. I, I mean, when it comes to things like physical risk, mm -hmm. I think actually the distributions overlap. That distribution overlaps much less than the people versus things mm -hmm. one. Now, again, mm -hmm. I'm just made an empirical claim, which is incredibly hard to stand up. But, but we do know. I mean, actually, when it comes to like physical risk, there is no because men are encouraged to take risks. We just are. You're manly if you're taking risks. That's just the thing that we've always, we, it's been that way the whole time I've been here. And my experience isn't unique. Really quite a stark difference between men and women, both in a positive and a negative way. So that distribution is not that, it's not that the least risk-taking men aren't less risk-taking than the most risk-taking women, but but the distribution. Ooh, this is starting to sound a lot like the race and IQ stuff too. Like the way they're talking about it. Lobster fishermen. Look, if you if you said to me twenty years from now, it's still ninety five percent men. You know, with that high mortality, I wouldn't necessarily. Assume I think twenty five years from now, lobster fishing is going to be done by robots. That was because of sexism. I might assume that was genuinely because of differences in preferences and and a willingness to risk your life. Yeah. By the way, just a couple of sidebars. Uh, I've noticed several books on, come on my radar. 
uh, people that w- want to get their authors on on my show, and 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 I've seen reviewed in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and so on. These books about sex, female sexuality, and how the feminist movement back in the '60s and '70s sold them something of a bill of goods, kind of a male type sexuality, where what? you are you know reasonably promiscuous, you want lots of partners, and so on, and that oh, kind no. of planted in the minds of women. This is what your goal should be. But, and this is, again, a kind of an evolutionary psych argument that, you know, men's and women's sexual psychology are different, you know, and that women are more risk averse for obvious reasons. And wait, wait, what are, No, what are the obvious reasons that women are more risk averse, Michael? These violence and so on. And uh, they're much more choosing and, and careful because, you know, if they get pregnant only so many times and you got to make sure you make the right decision. Whereas guys are, you know, just... Your- Wait, no, no, no. You can have, you can get your fuck on and not get pregnant. We've, we've solved that problem. As many places as possible. So I'm, I'm oversimplified, but there, there seems to be several new books by young women in their like early thirties saying, I lived the feminist dream and it did not serve me well, you know, just sleeping around and it was hollow. It was empty. Uh, I hate myself for it now. But there's men who feel that way too. And they're not going to bring this up at all is that sometimes men who sleep around are like, Oh, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. You know, Oh, that, I remember this one gal actually would have been great if I'd have like gone out with her. Oh, look at how happy she is. Like, come on. And actually, you know what? Being in love with one guy and getting married and having kids is not such a bad thing. <laughs> so it's interesting how that, you know, that that kind of comes back to that old conservative argument. Right. But wait a minute. No, no, no. That's just like getting older. That's just getting older. You just want different things in your thirties than you do in your twenties. This isn't, this has nothing to do with women or feminism or the sexual revolution. Men are also more likely to want to settle down in their thirties. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting how things come around. And, and I think Christine Ember, uh, who mm, uh, right, I've had a conversation right. with, and Louise Louise Perry, one American, oh, one right. Brit, really pushing uh, on this, and and I think it's fascinating to see the growing backlash against quote sex positivity, uh, and an interesting other little mm. here's a little data nugget that just came my way is that there that Gen Z women are consuming romance novels at nope. much higher <laughs> rates than really? pre- than previously. Yeah, and and I'm just super interested. Like, maybe the romance novels are getting better. Like, or yeah, what if the romance novels are better now? Because they remember how cheesy they were with like Fabio on the cover and shit, like in the '80s. Maybe the romance novels are getting better, and they appeal to like more people now. Maybe they're getting better at appealing to their target audience by not being like this this cheesy shit with Fabio and his fucking lion lioness locks of hair on the cover standing on a fucking rock in a storm. You know, maybe they've just, maybe that those, that genre has improved. The pandemic, uh, mm. has also reset. Plus you did see the so-called sex recession, less sex going on generally. And I, I think there's a, re- a rethinking going on here. And again, sex like risk, sex is one of those areas where there is an, 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 un- an uncontroversial difference between men and women in terms of how far we're driven driven by sex. I quote Melvin Connor on on that. But you've had David Buss talking about this. Uh, Wait, how do we know this? I are there is are there like study? Is he like gonna like say why he thinks this? Because I, I, and I could be wrong, but I vaguely remember, like, not too terribly long ago, they asked, like, how often do you think about sex? And men and women actually think about sex about the same amount of times any given day. A really good, really excellent episode here. And so, again, 
you accept there's a difference on average, what does that mean for the way we conduct ourselves? And I think that Christine and Louise and others are right to say that it's a mistake just to take a male standard when it comes to sex and presume that women should adopt, adopt it and that that's what liberation looks like. It's equally a mistake to say that there aren't plenty of women who do want to be like that and maybe men who don't. So again, it's back to distributions can overlap, but also differ. And I think one of the main cultural tasks of society is- This is just an, this is, he's like arguing the bell curve. This is the same, this is the fucking same argument. This is the same argument as the bell curve. Like you just change a few of the nouns out and we're fucking having the bell curve conversation find ways to accommodate those differences between men and women, particularly with regard to sex, uh, and, and find a way to have social norms and institutions that can actually make the differences between men and women on average overlapping districts, <laughs> make it productive. Um, and Louise goes as far as to say, we, should, we, we need more chivalry. And I thought, well, that's a very brave thing for a feminist to say. <laughs> yeah. But what does chivalry mean? Uh, the word chivalry, it, I, because I, you know, immediately it conjures up like a knight, right? You're, you're like thinking of a, of, a, of a man with a fucking sword. But I don't know, there could be like positive chivalry. Sure. Well, apparently Gen Zers are having a lot less sex along with drinking less yes. and smoking less. Well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. Drinking and smoking, which I do both of, um, are bad for you. Sex isn't bad for you. So like lumping these three things together in the way that Shermer just did kind of tells me something about what he believes. Some of it was, no, I, I, generally it's not a bad thing generally. And actually it's interesting to see a lot of social and what Richard Reeves believes, I suppose, declining birth rate. But the main reason the birth rate's going down is because of the fall in non-marital births and teen and teen pregnancy, and so those are the that's things sex that education. Sex education, also like people are less people are getting less uh, sexually transmitted infections because of sex ed. That social conservatives were freaking out about ten years ago, and so now. Now they're freaking out about the lack of them in a way. Um, and so actually a lot of those norms of like, I mean, the decline in teen pregnancy has been extraordinary in the last 20 years. Sex ed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially among less advantaged groups. And so Sex ed. I do, I, but I, I think the cultural moment we're in around femininity, masculinity, sex and roles and so on is, is really interesting. And, and I think we're having a better debate now than we were even just a few years ago when I embarked on this project, actually. I'm, 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 I'm happier about the world I'm launching this book into than I thought I would be, mm. frankly. Oh, good. But this yeah. is like a laundering of like the, some of the things that the men's rights movement and the incels are saying. This is like a laundering and like, a, like Alex from the Q Origins Project said, like academic window dressing on the same kinds of things that uh, were being said by the men's rights movement during like the height of the manosphere just a few years ago. I have an opinion, by the way, on this um, a, a problem of both boys and girls, but especially girls, teenagers, cutting, uh, anxiety, higher rates of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, and so on. Apparently, it's gone up like double for boys and triple for girls. Uh, and, you know, uh, 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 Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg Lukianoff wrote this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. They're, they're, they were kind of in debate with um, Jean Twenge in her book, iGen about what the problem is, you know, is it screen time? Is it a specific site, social media, Facebook, be, fear of being left out, fear of missing out and so on? Can we, can we also 
like compare this to like how everybody like all the anti-vaxxers are like oh look autism's going up and it's like is it or are we diagnosing it more often so is it is it that the rates of these things are going up or is it that because society we've managed to to some extent destigmatize some of this stuff the young people are like more open to talking about it so forth what are your thoughts on that yeah, I've done a little bit of work with John on this, and actually we're now working on doing some work together on boys. So hopefully that's some of that oh. will come out soon oh, because he has been focused more on, on girls recently. And it's certainly true that depression rates have risen among girls. I think anxiety rates and other uh, like ADHD and so on have risen much more among boys and, of course, suicide rates. I mean, I don't know for sure that it's because people are more comfortable talking about it, but it's like the same thing as like, would you like would you say that there's more gay men today than there were like per capita in the 70s or is it just that you don't have to live in the castro west hollywood or the village to be out now you know it's this stuff's real complicated because it's people and and people have like people are like hesitant to talk about certain things even anonymously even if they're told that their name isn't being even if their name isn't taken down people are still hesitant to talk about things and as we destigmatize things people are more willing to talk about them. So it would seem as though the rate's going up, but we're just better able to diagnose it. We're better better able to get a read for it in our society because people are more willing to talk about it. I'm not saying that's the whole thing, but they they may still, they may bring it up, but I'm going to guess they're not going to. Um, remain much higher among young men and boys and girls, at least three times higher among young men than among young women. Um, although the highest among middle-aged white white men, actually. Uh, and so, again, mm. these categories get scrambled. And for what it's worth, I think that social media is playing a much bigger role for girls because social media is a way to facilitate interrelational bullying, to put it bluntly. I mean, girls are more susceptible to relational bullying, boys a bit more to physical bullying, which has declined hugely. And so I think to the extent that social media can kind of weaponize a natural tendency of like mean girls, to use that phrase, to be even meaner to mm -hmm. each other um, and to a bigger audience. I think that really is, I think that really is. Uh, more of the girls are gossipy. I mean, that's not what he's saying, but it's girls are gossipy. It's, it's quite a different story for boys, partly because they use. Oh, and men gossip like a, like a motherfucker. Just look at left Twitch. Look at, look at the left on Twitter and tell me that men aren't gossipy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Come on. Quite differently. They're much more likely to be video gaming. Uh, than they are, for example, to be using things like Instagram and so on. Too. Okay, this is not women and men or girls and boys or whatever play video games at the same, approximately the same rate. This is incorrect. There was a whole Gamergate. The Gamergate was about that. It, it was about her, like targeted harassment of a few people. And that was, I don't want to diminish that part of Gamergate because it, it ruined people's lives. It like Brianna Wu, who is like well-respected in tech, is still suffering, still being abused and harassed because of the ramifications of Gamergate. But Gamergate came about because women were playing games and are playing games at the same rate as men are, and men were fucking pissed off to find women in their space when all they were doing was playing a fucking video game. And they're less, it's less relational, it's more transactional, they're online. Uh, activities and so I think for boys it's a slightly different problem I think for boys it's more about loneliness it's almost the opposite problem so it's more about a lack of so wait a minute wait bullying is the opposite of loneliness like I what
if you're being bullied, even though people are paying attention to you, you feel utterly alone. Chips and the screen time, for example, video gaming or porn or pornography could be crowding out other forms of relationship uh, building, which could leave many of those men more lonely. And so I think it's almost like the opposite where girls are being. He keeps bringing up video games, but he's just wrong. He's just wrong. Absolutely fucking wrong. Are in relationships, which can be quite canton, quite toxic, but boys very often don't, they do lack relationships. And there's good work out of AI's um, survey center uh, on this, on the growing loneliness, particularly of young men, mm. and how young men are now, they, they're more likely to ask their parents for advice than their friends and so on. And mm. so I think- Wait, that's uh, good. That's good. There are times in my life when I was young that I went to my, that I should have gone to my parents for advice and instead I listened to my fucking friends. My friends were like 16 or 17 just like I was and didn't know shit about fuck because they were also 16-year-old boys and I didn't think I could go to my parents for the advice I needed. If young men feel like they can go to their parents for advice, young men teenagers, that's good. This is huge progress. He, some of the stuff he's saying is undercutting what I believe like his main argument here is actually. I think it's playing out very differently for the two sexes. I forget, is, are boys and girls the same on suicidal ideation, but boys and men are more likely to die by suicide because they use guns rather than some other means that are less foolproof? Yeah, or just, I mean, the, the gap is similar in other countries, even when there aren't guns, like the UK, for example. So oh, it's, okay. uh, it's certainly mm. true that the... The, the, it's certainly true the gender gap in ideation is much less um, mm. and may even be similar. And of course, there are, which means there are many more attempted suicides um, uh, relative to completed suicides. So, whereas among boys and men, it is more likely to be completed. But, but it seems to be, I mean, obviously, guns generally drive up suicide rates because they just make it much, much easier, to put it bluntly. Um, but the gap in, in the, in, in a suicide as opposed to an attempt to suicide, just hold internationally as far as I can see. And so I think that is something different about the mental health problems that precede it. Yeah. Um, your book is chock full of research and data and so on. Like, I love this, this chart here showing the, um, you know, the, 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 the moment at which women outperform men or uh, just, we're making more appearances in colleges and universities. Well, it looks like around 1983 to 85, right in the mid 80s or so is when they, they caught up. Let me just ask you as a, just as a sidebar, because I really uh, am impressed with the Brookings Institution as, as somehow maintaining political neutrality. It looks like you guys are kind of centrist. And I see you sometimes get accused of being conservative, sometimes being liberal. So I know you must be doing the right thing because I had the same thing. How do you maintain that kind of neutrality? I mean, do you have like editorial well, meetings? Go, look, we're not going to get polarized here, even though we could raise more money if we <laughs> wave the red flag. <laughs> uh, it's, well, it's a big question for a lot of institutions right now, of course. And it's frankly, it's a big question for the Brookings Institution. Uh, especially as the political world becomes much more divided. You know, if you're an institution that wants working as an institution is a center yeah, right and you, think and you're tank. in a political world which is neoliberal, then the incentive and that's an okay to thing to be a team become greater because it, it, it's if it gets harder and harder to get people on the other team to even listen to you, then why bother? <laughs> you know, if you're at AI and Democrats don't 
care what you think. And if you're at Brookings and Republicans don't care what you think, then you're in real trouble. And and that has been a bit a, a, a trend in, in recent years in politics. And we obviously work downstream from there. So the challenge for us is to some make try and remain immune to that. And I think the solution is, first of all, we have great scholarly independence. And so there's a, a high degree of academic and scholarly freedom. You, you really, as long as you meet our quality standards, there's really very little to stop you writing about and investigating what you think. But also the other thing, it's just like, it's a selection. Who do you recruit for? And I, I think we have a long history of recruiting people who call it as they see it and aren't looking over their shoulder the whole time for what their political overlord. I bet the Brookings Institute has a long history of hiring people who look and sound like Richard Reeves. Um, And some of the fiercest critics, for example, of the student loan forgiveness program are former Obama administration officials who are affiliated with the Brookings Institution. And they're not thinking, well, Mm. yeah, will this, will this affect, and, and I should say some people who are prominently in favor as well. Like we don't feel the need to agree with each other. So in that sense, I think we've built in, we have a, an approach to epistemology, which is both about recruit people who are going to call it as they see it, but then let them have at it and don't force any kind of agreement on them. So Brookings doesn't have a line on anything. And Wait a minute. Is, is, <clears throat> what about fact checking? Do they have fact checking? I imagine they do. I'm just, I'm just like, if you take what he's saying, like just kind of at face value and don't really ask any follow-ups. You might think that it's like Killette, where anybody can just kind of write whatever the hell they want. Now, I don't think that's what's going on at the Brookings Institute. I think that the things they put out are probably pretty rigorously fact-checked, where people are making truth claims. I don't think that that's not happening. If you name any single subject, I could find you Brookings scholars who disagree about it. And I think that's the... So we're trying to build in that sense of a collision of ideas I'm using John Stuart Mill now, one of my previous subjects, mm. uh, as kind of mm-hmm. part, part of what we do. And I think oh, AI that's right. You wrote, a bi- you wrote a biography of Mill, right? I did, yeah. And then John Haidt and I, um, we actually- uh, He keeps bringing uh, up Jonathan Haidt, and that's like fucking red flags for me. I do not like Jonathan Haidt. That's uh, right. Yes, illustrated the, edition uh, of chapter all two. All Mankind Minus One. All, I have all that. Minus that's one. you. That was you. I forgot yeah. about that. Yes. Oh, yes he's showing that. us his books. Yeah. Anybody listening on the pod? There we go. Yeah. That was so All fun. Minus- and we got it illustrated and stuff. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a million liberal by, by background. <laughs> that would make you more of a classical liberal, I think, whatever those terms mean. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a cl- classical liberal means uh, now, it, these days, it means idiot. Anymore because people- and I don't think the guy on the right's an idiot. I just disagree with him about some stuff. And I think he's bringing up, <clears throat> I think he's kind of laundering some of the stuff I heard in the men's rights era. Which sort of overlap with the golden age of chemtrails, which is weird. To not call themselves conservative. I know, I know. I think it's become a problem. Allows them to say that they're liberal when they're actually not, yeah. Yeah. Well, I ask about the the, the political orientation question because I remember hearing about the men's movement, so-called men's movement, when I was going through my divorce. Oh, no. The so-called, you know, he was leaving out the, the men's, he's talking about the men's rights movement. And he's intimately familiar with the men's rights movement because after he was accused of sexual assault, he went running to the people in the men's rights movement, just like I David thought, Silverman oh, yeah, did. I really get this, you know, cause I was worried about this, that, and the other spousal support, and child support and separate homes. And I already went through that when I was a kid, my parents divorced when I was four. And so, you know, I grew up in two homes and, you know, my dad had to pay my mom money and every other weekend. And I thought, Oh God, I don't want that. 
So anyway, so I encountered this men's movement. I thought, and I thought, okay, these are going to be my people. It's like these are not my people. They 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 seem to hate women. They, it's almost a conspiracy theory. Like they're out to get men. I'm like, you know what? I don't. Well, that's interesting that you say that you like looked into the men's rights movement, like when you got divorced, because Mr. Shermer, after your divorce, well after your divorce, you had Stefan Molyneux on your show, and then after you interviewed him, you called him a great skeptic really feel that way i just think, i think it's you know kind of structured the way it is historically but you know so what you're doing here is quite different from the mids movement right well at least he's putting some academic window dressing on a lot of the things that they were saying 10 years ago i hope so i mean i think it's unfortunate <laughs> that it wasn't possible to create something that was an equality movement if you like which would sometimes we do. It was called feminism. You could be a, you can be a man and a feminist. I am a man and a feminist. Treating the inequalities that affect boys and men, and then but continue to affect those that that uh, face women and girls. I I think that what happened to the women's movement, and you saw some prominent examples of this, and you know, Warren Farrell is probably a a sort of a, a personal example of what happened there. Um, is the the women's movement just it remained a women's movement rather than an equality movement, and so what that but means like. Is <clears throat> A lot of, like the first battered men's shelters were propped up by feminist organizations. Is that if you want to tackle any because the feminist organizations were like they heard that men were also the victims of domestic abuse and they were like, oh, we can do something about that. We can try to help. Is that affect men, boys and men? Where do you go? And then, a, and the answer was like nowhere in the mainstream. And so, what that means is that through the natural you know, selection processes, the people who are left to talk and write about these issues tend to be self-selected, angry, and think that there's a war on men, um, which is absurd. Um, and pretty quickly, you get turned off by them if you engage with them very much. And so, that creates a huge space because. And, and it's not to say they don't sometimes make very legitimate points. They, they do. Yes, you're laundering those from an arguments through the Brookings Institute. anti-women, angry perspective, and it is conspiratorial. It is, you know, they think that feminists are running the world secretly and that, as I said, there's a war on boys or a war on men. And, and like no one, no one sensible really feels that. But what Wait, what's the title of your is, book? Yeah, there's a lot of issues for boys and men now. Maybe, hey, maybe we should tackle those without meaning we have to turn on women. And these false choices and false binaries have been a huge problem, I think, in the debate about gender. Uh, and I, I hope they're getting a little bit better, but I think it's slow progress, honestly. Yeah, I think some of the legal aspects of divorce and settlements came out of the kind of battle days when the you know man was the only breadwinner. And then, you know, when the kid's a teenager and the wife's just been home out of the labor market for 15 years and he runs off with secretary and gets remarried and she's I mean, that's not why people that's a that's right? a that's so, also it's a very caricatured like very old school description of why people get divorced right and i know he's talking about the bad old days but even then it wasn't it wasn't like that every time it wasn't that simple sometimes people just stop getting along sometimes people stop uh being romantically uh attracted to each other so he has to give some of that because she labored at home. You know, I, I thought, yeah, that seems that seems right. You know, hopefully now that's not an issue anymore, given, you know, the closing of those those gaps. But, you know, I could I could see where that historically 
came from. So, you know, I, I think that informs much of your book, you know, what, you know, the shift has gone in the other direction, perhaps. And, you know, and so, and, but also like the legal system is, is catching up with the changing times too. Like women have to pay alimony and child support sometimes if, if some men are end up keeping the kids, like the legal system is catching up with the changing times too. It's just, they don't, they don't hear about it. All they hear, like, there's whole like internet forums for men who are divorced and angry. And like, this is where, this is probably where they hear all this stuff. And that kind of trying to redefine what is a father and what is your role for boys when they're growing up, that that's very much in flux now. Yeah. I think the, the big point I want to make about fatherhood is to create a, a more direct relationship between fathers and kids. So the way I think about this and write about this is that, in some ways, fathers had an indirect relationship with children in the old world. So the mum had the direct relationship as the main carer and the dad had an indirect relationship as the, the main provider. Um, so if you like, it's sort of corporate speak. God, I'm 45 years old and that was not the way, that was not the way the house I lived in worked at all. Dotted line. That's just my experience and I'm from the yeah, Bay Area. Yeah. My parents are like, we're very modern people. Horizontal lines still are. to his, right, or maybe a vertical one, depending on what you. And she had a direct one to the kids. But now that the 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 connection, that the chains of dependency is Jeff Dench's phrase between men and women have really been loosened, if not broken. What does that mean for men's relationship with children? And I think it has to be essentially unbundled from marriage. This is where the social conservatives really depart from my line of argument, as I think that if we're going to have a world where we don't need marriage as an institution to bind women to men for reasons of economic dependency, then we can't rely on marriage as a means to bind fathers to children. Uh, and so we have to find direct ways of doing that instead. And for married men, as you just said, Michael, the divorce laws have done quite well at keeping up, actually. And men, married men now get a third of the time with children after divorce. There are you know, there are only a minority of cases now are uh, you know, mom-only custody, et cetera. So Actually, for, for married men, the system is not working too badly. The problem is for- un Oh, shit. That guy just said what I said, that the legal system's catching up with the times. Yeah, he's not wrong. I, that was my, that's been my uh, observation, too. Married men. I'll give it to and him on that one. The huge rise in the number of kids born outside marriage now, nearly half of all births. What that means is unmarried men are really- that they actually have a much more tenuous legal position when it comes to their kids, should they separate from the mum or not have been married to not have been with them in the in the first place. In every US state, if you're not married, the default is mum gets sole full custody. And so the guy has to go to court to prove paternity and, and it effectively has to fight for the right to see his kids. Whereas in marriage it's assumed. So what so so our systems of law haven't caught up with the reality of family life, and in particular the role, the need for fathers to have this direct relationship with men. You know, we, don't, we don't want to bench men just because women don't need them economically anymore, because their kids still need them mm. as much, if not more, than ever. Oh, totally, yes. Two is better than one, so, as far as parents I, go, no matter what the situation is, absolutely. I so, barring uh, one of the parents I'm being totally abusive or whatever, it, you know? I have to admit, if I was 27... You know, when I was still in graduate school and then I was a bike racer and I was just kind of living, you know, an independent life. And I, I don't think I would have had the energy commitment and so on. So I could you talk about the difference between boys and, and girls and maturity? I do think, you know, boys mature much slower and, and not just not just biologically with their prefrontal cortex and all that, but just in terms of, you know, kind of where where you want to go in your 20s. 
and what you want to do such that having a kid would really interfere with that. And that makes it harder to be, you know, totally into it. Um, but again, this is, this, it, this might not be like inherent. This might be societal nudging. You know, I'd never missed a single soccer game with my daughter and, you know, I never wanted to miss a single day, even when I was traveling a lot. Can't, I'm not sure I would have been that way in my 20s, right? What's the research show on that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think the 20s are really where you do see some quite big differences now uh, in the trajectories of young men and young women. I mean, the way if you just look at things like college going, which we've already mentioned, but then transition into the labor market. So young men are much more likely to be living at home with their parents in their 20s than young women are. And, and if you look at those who do go to college, there's a, about a 10 percentage point enrollment gap. But, but I think almost as interesting is conditional on enrolling in college. There's a 10 percentage point gap in having graduated four years later. Uh, and then the gap gets a bit, a bit less at six years and 10 years. And so there's, a sort of, there's almost like a linear uh, path that girls are taking. They're much more likely to go straight from high school to college. They're much more likely to get through college on time. They're much less likely to then go and move back in with mom and dad. Um, they're, they're actually buying houses in greater numbers in in those in the twenties and so on too, and so there's a sort of there's a there's an agency and direction about young women, which I think is absolutely a gift of the women's movement, which is get educated, get economically independent, get ahead, you know, get yourself sorted essentially, and and assume you're going to have to be able to take care of yourself, even if you do end up being being married. Then even if you're married, you still. You if you're married, there's just two of you and you're taking care of yourself and each other. You're not, as soon as you get married, like that, oh, that he's like, oh, women now don't have to assume, oh, what a, what a fucked up, like, let's go back. Let's listen to this again. And so on too. And so there's a sort of, there's a, there's an agency and direction about young women, which I think is absolutely a gift of the women's movement, which is get educated, get economically independent, get ahead, you know, get yourself sorted essentially. And and assume you're going to have to be able to take care of yourself, even if you do end up being being married. Then this this idea of education and economic independence is really strong among women. The guys are much more likely to stop out of college. They're much more likely to drop out of college. They're much more likely to be back in with their mums and dads. They're more likely to try their hand at a business. They want to have time out of the labour market, and so they're just, just zigzagging. There's just more drift. And that, oh, that thing you said, where oh, even if you get married, oh, come on, dude, you're you. You just you just slip the mask off a little bit there, buddy. And I think that that is the the sort of argument almost against what you were just saying, which is you know you're not you know, men aren't interested in their twenties and having a kid and all of that. Well, that's sort of true, but but I also think that at least in the past there was a script for them to follow. And I think now that that script's been torn up, it's quite hard for a lot of young men to know well, what am I supposed to do now. Uh, what's the next step? Where am I heading? And so, interesting. For all its yes, faults, the, I, North, the North Star of like one day I'm going to have to look yes, after a, you know a family did act as something of a motivator for men, which and we haven't really replaced it with anything. And so they're just just a bit more likely to drift, I think. Yeah, what I said probably reflects my generation. I'm a baby boomer. I'm about to turn 68, born in 54. Um, oh shit, he looked he, he looked good for his age. I mean, it was clear from the start. You're going to go older to college, than my, No, he's not. Work, older than you're going to make money. He's like five years my younger than my said, parents. You should make money. Money is good. <laughs> it opens up lots of opportunities. It makes life easier. Just do it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> and I like doing it. That's right? worse advice. I found something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's worse advice. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see the difference there now. Certainly, 
So you start off showing that, you know, it's 60-40 now in uh, college enrollment. I uh, teach at Chapman at 60, well, 6139 uh, this semester of the 8,000 or so students that entered this year. My my particular class, it's 50-50 exactly, I think, which was unusual. But I'm teaching Skepticism 101, you know, so maybe... But Skepticism, he's teaching Skepticism 101. What is that? I get, I get a little bit of a skew of interest. I don't know. But, um, but, but so once oh, women, men, men are more interested in skepticism, all right, sure. Up when they had the opportunity to do so in the eighties, why didn't it level off at 50, 50 and stay there? That's the hard question <laughs> that you spend much well, of your book trying to tease apart. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's worth noting that nobody predicted that, uh, you know, I went back and looked at some of the some of the literature from the 70s and talk to some of the sociologists who are working on this, uh, Andrew Cherlin, for example, at Johns Hopkins and, and others. Um, and it, you really, no one predicted it. Everyone was just like, we need to get to equality. We need to get to parity, right? No one said, yeah, but, yeah, but what, if, what if the line just keeps going? Uh, so it literally came as a complete shock to everybody that the lines kept going and that these gaps just kept widening and widening. My own view is that the education system is in some quite important ways structured in favor of girls and women. And in particular, because of the differences in the rate of maturity and maturation among girls and boys, it puts girls at an advantage. And especially on average, et cetera, especially at the, uh, the critical point, which is high school. Like those, those like adolescence is, is mission critical time for education because it's when you get the grades and you do the test prep to take you on to post-secondary and so on too. But that's where the biological difference in the rate of brain development is at its greatest. And for all the debates, and I know you've talked a lot about this on this podcast, uh, Michael, is for all the debates about the differences between you know, male and female brains in adults, which I tend to think one side understate and the other side overstate, there's no controversy about the fact that a 15-year-old girl is more advanced, everything else equal, than a 15-year-old boy. And so with that prefrontal cortex, and it's not cognitive skill, it's not that she's smarter, it's that she's more organized, she's gone top of things, she's less likely to take risks, she does less, fewer dumb things, et cetera. And so, <laughs> but but boys are socialized happen? to take more risks. You're a tough guy if you're taking risks and there's no, girls aren't socialized in that way. I'm not saying it's just that, but that's there. And is that once we removed most of the barriers to women's progress, it revealed a structural advantage that they had in the education system. Uh, and that is now being, that now shows up in the figures. And it hardly need saying that wasn't, you know, it wasn't deliberate. No one designed the education system to be in favor of girls, but we couldn't see it before. I mean, the fact that girls were doing better than boys in high school in the 50s is extraordinary, really, given the incentives that they faced. Um, but they were. And as soon as we took the brakes off, boom. So now I think we have to look seriously about the way the education system actually is failing a lot of boys and men uh, and, is, and is more female friendly than male friendly. And I think the I mean, that's as good a place as any to stop the pod, though. We're going to watch the uh, maybe not the rest of this, but we'll watch some more of this during the post game. But I want to kind of end it on this. I do think that it's not just for um, teenage boys, but for everybody basing what's going to happen to you during the rest of your life on what happens to you like right after you start puberty is fucking stupid. It just is. You're, you're, you're in high school and your brain is going through like the development that takes you from being a child to an adult. And so now we're going to grade you on your academic performance during this 
like tumultuous time for you personally, even if you're a popular kid or whatever, it's still a tumultuous time. So that's probably bad. And I don't know if it's worse for boys or worse for girls or whatever, but it's probably stupid. <laughs> Seems dumb to me. And I hadn't really thought about it much, but, and this isn't fully fleshed out, but it seems like the wrong time to do that is high school is like when someone's 14 through 18 seems like the absolute wrong time to do that. I don't know what the solution is because after high school is then university and we have this like competitive system of getting into university that's based on your, um, based on your performance in high school. But what if university was like when you go from middle school to high school where you just, there's a public university and then you go to the public university that all the other people like, I don't know. I don't know the answer because there's something kind of cool about going away for, uh, going away to university when you're a, when you're a young adult, young adult, you're away from your parents, you know, you're living on your own for the first time. And there's all that, all that stuff's real cool. And I just wonder if there's like a way we can keep that part and like, stop it with this stop it with this putting all this academic pressure on on people as they are just as they're transitioning from you know uh, adolescence to adulthood it seems like the wrong time to put this pressure on anyone and to the extent that young girls are performing better under this pressure i mean that that's not really the problem right the problem is is the the pressure that's being put on these people think about yourself at 14 or 15 do you think it's fair that the decisions you were making as a freshman and a sophomore in high school are going to have profound impacts on the rest of your life? I don't think that's very fair as long as you're not killing anybody, right? If you're just not doing your homework, like why should that have like, this profound impact on the rest of your life where the other kid that was doing their homework, they went to Yale and you don't get to go to Yale. Oh, it's just such a messed up, fucked up thing. And I think that we could, I think that it, the smarter thing to do is to grapple with that versus to try to like, versus what this guy's choosing. And, but I, my bias here is obviously it has, my bias is like right out on front street here as having like covered the dystopia beat, you know, in a more informal way without like uh, an organization or friends working on a project with me, but I was still like interested in the dystopia beat for a long time. The dystopia beat was the men's rights movement. And this guy's just not everything he's saying, but enough of what he's saying is like a laundering and, and putting window dressing on the, the claims that the men's rights movement were making. And it would be much better if the Brookings Institute would take a look at the thing I just brought up. I think, why are we putting all this pressure on people as they go, as they just get out of puberty, as they go, as they go from uh, adolescence into adulthood, why are we doing that? Like whose idea was that? <laughs> Like, did anybody ever decide that? Or is that just the way it fucking shook out and we're not going to change it? Cause that's how we're doing it. I feel like maybe if we could shift that even, even just four years, I think it would be better for everyone. Cause I know I was, I was still irresponsible at 18, but boy, was I irresponsible at 14. Boy, oh boy, was I irresponsible at 14. So maybe we're just putting too much pressure on people in high school, just across the board. Because they're, they're literally learning how to be adults. They're learning how to date. They're, lear they're learning how to do all these other things that aren't academic. And if they're having a, if it's, if that part of their life is tumultuous, then how are we going to expect a fucking 15 year old 
to tune out their tumultuous personal life to focus on academia so that they can get into a good college. I think that's an unreasonable thing to expect of a 15 or a 16 year old or 17 year old. And so I think maybe, maybe more work needs to be done thinking about this stuff. And I bet like in, in places where they're studying education, they are thinking about this. Cause if you, I don't know if people know, uh, there are a lot of States, including California where it's either starting to happen or it's going to start happening soon that, uh, teenagers are going to start classes later. They're not supposed, they're not gonna have to be at class at eight. They're going to be there like 10. It's actually bad for teenagers to be woken up at fucking six thirty in the morning because they're, they're teenagers are impulsive and they want, they're going to stay up late. And so it's just bad to wake their ass up at fucking like six thirty in the morning and then send them to a class where they're going to, where they're supposed to go learn geometry. It's they're like 15. The other kids don't like them. Maybe the other kids think they're weird. They like a girl that doesn't like them back and that hurts. Or they're like a boy that doesn't like them back and that hurts. Maybe they're like one boy and one girl. Neither of them like them back and that hurts. Or maybe the kids, maybe the, the teenager is gay or trans or non-binary and they're having a hard time socializing and the things are tough at home because of that. And now we're putting this, oh, also you have to get good grades or the rest of your life is going to suck. We're putting that pressure on them. Seems fucking stupid. And it seems like if it seems like we should be thinking about addressing that before we start thinking about this crap here that they've been talking about, but that's just my opinion. And I'm not a, certainly not an education specialist or a expert on teenagers. So I don't even know if I'd be able to have a conversation with a teenager these days. I'm getting pretty old, but I mean, that's just my final thoughts there. And, um, I don't like that Richard Reeves is able to run around and launder some of the stuff that the men's rights movement was uh, putting out there and be treated as, uh, as if he's not doing that, nobody ever pushing back on him. Um, it's not surprising to me that he's talking to Shermer and Yang. Uh, Shermer, because his history is what it is, and Andrew Yang has always had a strong contingent of uh, men's rights activist types and um, fans of the Google Memo guy in his uh, in his audience. So, anyway, that's been the uh, podcast version of the show. Live listeners, stay put. As always, we're going to do some post game. We'll watch a little more of this, but I won't torture you with the whole fucking thing. Um, Podcast listeners, thanks for tuning in yet again this week. Make sure you're following the podcast if you aren't already. Tell a friend about it. And uh, if you've never done it, check out the show live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Um, and as always, this is Boomers by Periscope. I'm about to change the color of the lights, change the content of my beverage, and we'll be back with Red Light.
Tuesdays, we get local. Starting at 7.30, it's our local news podcast, Down Ballot. And then we swing over to local love starting at 9 p.m. Tune in early to see what's going on during the day, then stay locked in to find out what's happening in local music and whose bands are hitting the venues for the week. It's a whole night of news and music right in San Jose's backyard, starting at 7.30 p.m. Pacific on twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Check out our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com.